Let me pray, though, for God's help as we begin. Lord, we ask that you would open up to us your word. Please make it clear. Lord, please give us insight into ourselves and our own hearts too. And Lord, we pray that in our time this afternoon, you would teach us the ways of your kingdom for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I guess many of us know, some of us firsthand, some of us painfully firsthand, how confusing it can be when you're somewhere new and things don't quite work the way they do at home. So Scott, who was just leading, he was telling me about a time in Madrid when he and his father tried to go out for lunch. They went into a restaurant about noon, just after noon, and they were quickly told that it wasn't lunchtime yet and they should come back in about four hours. Now, that's a fairly small mishap culturally, but sometimes the confusion can be more severe. For example, if you happen to be in Bulgaria and you ask someone a question, if people nod their head, apparently that means no instead of yes. Or if someone shakes their head, that means yes instead of no, which to us is the wrong way around, isn't it? And you can easily see how that would lead to great confusion and embarrassment as somebody you're staying with asks, did you enjoy the meal? And you sort of do this. And <laughs> Now, it's that kind of cultural confusion that we see as we look at these chapters in Mark's Gospel, 8, 9, and 10. In this section, Jesus is with his 12 disciples, and he is teaching them what it means to live as members of a strange new place a strange new place that is called the kingdom of God. A kingdom is a strange place, I'll say it again, where things work very differently from what we're used to, where the first shall be last and the last first. Now, let's just pause for a minute. What does that mean, the kingdom of God? Maybe you've heard the phrase before, but what does it mean? What is that? Where is that? Well, it's hard to understand because the kingdom of God, on the one hand, is a future hope. The Bible describes the kingdom, like we've just sung, as the perfect place where sin is banished and suffering is no more. It's what God's people have always been and are still waiting for, either at the end of their lives or at the end of history. And so you may have noticed, as Scott read it, twice in this passage, the kingdom of God is equated with eternal life because the kingdom is a future hope. However, it is also a present reality. That's how Jesus began his ministry that Scott read at the beginning of the service. He said that the kingdom is near now because the king is here. And all around him in his earthly life, it's as if that perfect future world was breaking into the present age as sickness was driven back and evil was driven back and even death itself was overturned. And Jesus called those who heard him to enter the kingdom now as a matter of present reality, to recognize that he's the king. If Jesus is my king, if he's your king, then you have entered the kingdom as a matter of present reality. And the point is, the point is that when you become a member of the kingdom of God, if you're able to say that Jesus is my king, I I recognize who he is, that he's the king, and I want him to be my king, then you are now a member of God's kingdom, and suddenly, everything is different. It's like being in a foreign country where things don't work the way that we're used to. We are all by nature citizens of this age, 
we have certain ways of doing things. It's what we're used to. But the kingdom of God, it's what we learn in Mark's gospel. The kingdom of God is completely different. And so we see these disciples in these chapters making error after error. They keep on making, as it were, faux pas, acting and thinking in the line with the ways of this world rather than the kingdom. For example, right back at the start of the section in chapter 8, they're talking with Jesus, and they, they've finally understood that he's the king. And he says to them, and by the way, in the kingdom, the fact that I'm the king, that means that I will suffer and lay down my life for my people. I'll die for them. And Peter, one of the disciples, he, he just can't get his head around that. Because that's not how it's meant to work, is it? In this world, royalty lived the good life. Other people lay down their lives to protect them. But Jesus says that in the kingdom, that's not how it works. Or if you were here last week, they had a similar misunderstanding about the issue of greatness. Because in the world, the great ones are looked up to and people serve them. You know, they issue orders for people underneath them. And so that's how the disciples were thinking. They are jockeying for position, arguing over who among them would be the greatest. But Jesus pulls them up again and says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom, greatness is about becoming least and last. It's about humility and serving others. It's a strange place, this kingdom of God. Its ways seem often to be upside down compared to what we're used to. And so these disciples need to relearn much of what they think they know about how the world works. And the thing is, so do we. If you're a Christian here today, um, we find it just as hard, don't we, as these disciples did to learn the new ways of the kingdom. Because the old ways, the normal ways of working in this world are so deeply ingrained within us. We so often slip back into them, even if we're a person who would say, yes, I'm a member of the kingdom. Jesus is my king. That's what I'm hoping for. We still slip back into the old ways. We need to learn these lessons to be shaped by the ways of the kingdom more and more. And that's what Mark will teach us. Or if you're not yet a Christian here, it's worth examining the kingdom of God because this is what God is offering you. If it ever feels to you like this world is not the way it should be, or like life is not the way it should be, or people are not the way they should be, this upside-down kingdom of God is the alternative that he is offering us. When Christians talk about the good news, this is it. A world that is not like this one, where things work a different way, and which God is inviting you to enter. So let's look at Mark 10, and we'll learn three things. Actually, it's more like um, two and a half things about the kingdom of God, and they're on the service sheet. First of all, we see from this passage that the kingdom is for those who will receive from Jesus in humble dependence. The kingdom is for those who will receive from Jesus in humble dependence. We get this from the incident at the beginning of the passage, and people are bringing little children for Jesus to bless them. But the disciples shoo them all away. After all, he's an important guy. He's a busy man. He doesn't need these little children hassling him. So they they shoo them away. But it turns out that's another of these faux pas. Jesus turns around. He rebukes his disciples. He says, no, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
And then he makes this pronouncement in verse 15. Have a look at that. This is what they need to learn about the kingdom. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, what does that mean? It's teaching us something important about the kingdom, but what does it mean? The key word there is receive. Jesus isn't saying that we need to be innocent like a little child to get into the kingdom because that isn't what he says, and little children are not so very innocent. What he's saying is that we need to receive the kingdom like a little child. And it is true that little children are the very best at receiving things. The last couple of Christmases, um, Kath and I have gone through to Glasgow. I have a big sister who lives in Glasgow with her family, and they have three children who are three, five, and seven. And when it comes to opening presents time on Christmas Day, then all three of them are very much in their element. The paper comes flying off. You've probably seen it. Uh, their eyes light up. They're on to the next one. They're building up a pile of presents. They're seeing whose pile is the biggest. They feel zero embarrassment about the fact that they haven't bought presents for anyone, not even for their parents. The giving is all one way, and they're fine with that. In a scholarly book on Mark I was reading this week, I um, came across a phrase that made me smile. It um, said that children are unselfconsciously receptive. And I thought, yes, that's right, isn't it? They are unconsciously receptive. The little hands come shooting out, ooh, for me. And it's not just at Christmas time either. Children are good at asking for things, simply asking, a drink, a toy, a story. They just ask. Whereas adults are not like that. If someone gives you a Christmas present and you haven't got them one, how embarrassing. Or if someone buys you a drink, then you'll buy them one next time. Or if you go out for a meal, you might end up fighting over who gets to pay the bill. A child would never do that. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God can only be received in a childlike way. We need to put aside thoughts of earning, put aside thoughts of something in return, and just ask. And the passage makes this point by way of a contrast. Um, You have the children on the one hand at the start of the passage who receive, and then if you look down, verse 17, a man comes up and says, "As, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he gets into a discussion about how good he's been and which of all of God's laws he's kept. And the thing is, all of that is very understandable, isn't it? Because isn't that how this world works? If you want something, you have to earn it. If you want to get in somewhere, then you have to fulfill the entry requirements. That's how this world works. Um, I hope we enjoy the barbecue later on. If you really enjoy it and you think, "Ah, I'd like to do this a bit more often, let's emigrate. (laughs) Let's go to Australia. Well, I'm afraid you could only do that if you have enough points on your visa application. I've not looked into it personally, but I'm told that in order to get into Australia, you need enough um, of a score on your application. So you get some points for being well-educated or for having a useful job. I think you get loads of points for being sporty. And if your score is high enough, then they'll let you in. Well, that is how this man approaches the kingdom of God. What must I do to get in? It's completely normal practice for the world. It's a very adult way of going about it. But it gets him nowhere. 
You see that as the story goes on. In the end, he goes away sad. He doesn't enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, it's quite shocking, he says that this approach, even though it's normal, this adult approach, will never, ever work. Because we could never keep God's standards. We could never score enough points. We could never earn from him. But the kingdom of God is for those who will receive from Jesus in humble dependence. It isn't like this world. It's upside down. You simply need to ask like a little child and receive it. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a convinced Christian, what do you think you need? What do you think God is asking you to do? I wonder what you think he demands from you. Morality? To look or feel a certain way? No, you simply have to ask and receive. You can't impress Jesus or pay him back. The whole message of the cross is that we have messed up, but he pays for us. The only requirement is that we are unselfconsciously receptive like a child. And this lesson is also very important for those of us who are already members of the kingdom. Many of us here would say that Jesus is our king, but we need to learn this lesson and not slip back into the ordinary ways of the world. For example, maybe you felt like this sometimes. Maybe you feel like this at the moment. But you know, I, I can't pray to God or feel close to him because it's been a really bad week. I know I've messed up. I've gone against what Jesus says, and so I just feel that I can't talk to him. I, I need to make amends first. Then I could ask for his help. Do you ever feel like that? That isn't how the kingdom works. We need to relearn how to be childlike, how to ask, and to ask again, and to know that we can't pay him back and be okay with that. And ask again. And this lesson should also shape the way that we are with other people. God's been generous with us. We should be generous with others. Notice the disciples at the start. They're thinking like in an old world kind of a way. They're shooing these children away because they are low status. They have nothing to offer. Whereas the rich man, surely he'd be great to have around. Let's get him on board. And yet things end up the other way. Jesus welcomes in those who are willing to receive, not those who feel that they have something to offer. And that should shape our church life, who who we welcome, who we seek to draw into, into the kingdom. I mean, everyone, anyone, regardless of how many points we think they score. God's kingdom is an upside down place. In some ways, that makes it quite uncomfortable. It's sort of, we don't quite know It's a bit uncomfortable, but at the same time, is very, very attractive. Because this adult world of ours can be such a grind, can't it? Whereas Jesus' kingdom is offering us the grace of a Father God. That's the first lesson here. The kingdom is for those who will receive from Jesus in humble dependence. Second lesson, the kingdom of God is for those who will relinquish worldly security for true security in Jesus. The kingdom of God is for those who will 
relinquish worldly security for true security in Jesus. This is what we learn from the second incident in the passage with the man. He comes up to Jesus to speak to him, and he's a good man. He's an attractive person. He comes to Jesus full of respect. He kneels, he addresses him as teacher, and he's spiritually interested. He, he wants to know about eternal life. He isn't a frivolous person, short-sighted, not thinking about these things. He wants to know about eternal life. He seems like a good guy. He, he's kept the laws. He's been a dutiful son. He's not a liar or a thief. He is a man of honor. He is upright. And Jesus doesn't challenge that, that by the normal human standards of the day and normal human standards, this is a good man. He doesn't react against him as Jesus used to do, often did with the hypocrites elsewhere in the Gospels. No, he looked at this man, and we read in verse 21, he looked at him and loved him. But for all of this, the man does not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says to him, you lack one thing, this rich man, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But the man won't do it. He walks away. Now we need to think, why did Jesus say this to him? For one thing, it seems like a very radical demand to sell everything and give it all away. A very radical demand. But also it's inconsistent, because Jesus didn't ask all who followed him to do that. We read about in the Gospels quite a few people who were wealthy, and Jesus told them to be generous and to be honest, but he didn't um, ask all of them to sell up and give it all away. So why did he talk to this man so strongly? Well, I think we can see it like this. Um, some countries do not allow their citizens to have dual nationality. Often, you're allowed that. You can have two passports. So I have friends who have a UK passport and a US passport, and that's, that's fine as far as those two governments are concerned. But other countries don't allow it. And I'm pretty sure this is right, that that's the case with China. Um, if you have a Chinese passport, if you're a Chinese um, citizen, that's it. You can't have another passport. You are a Chinese citizen, and that's your identity, that's your status, and that's it. You, you're not allowed to have another equally competing claim upon your loyalty and your identity. Your stake is either there in China 100%, or you're not with them at all. Well, I think that's what Jesus is saying here about the kingdom and why this rich man has a problem. Because becoming a member of the kingdom of God, it does mean a change of allegiance, a change of identity. In some sense, it does mean switching sides, moving from this world where I am king to the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. And ultimately, as you face a choice between these two worlds, ultimately you can only have one true home. And which will it be? This world or the world to come? That's the issue here. Jesus is a good judge of character. And so he says this particular thing to this particular man because he sees that as a rich person, he's going to value his stake in this present age. Because it's a great big stake. It's very pleasant. It's comfortable and secure. He's well-respected. And so Jesus wants to make sure that this man understands the absoluteness of the choice. Ultimately, which world are you going to belong to? This one or the next? You have to choose. It can't be both. 
Now, for us, it is important to understand that this is how Jesus dealt with this particular man. Like I was saying, um, he, he didn't make this general call to everyone who follows him to sell up and give it all away. That's not his universal call. But this question of loyalty is his universal question. Where is your real home? Is it this world or the world to come, the kingdom of God? It can't be both. We have to choose. Where is your ultimate identity and security? In this world or in the kingdom? Now, that's not an easy question to answer. Because those of us who are Christians, those of us who are kingdom people, we still live here. We still do have some kind of stake in this present world, and there's nothing we can do about that. So how do we know which one we're putting first? Is it a matter of if we're a a top-rate taxpayer, then that's too much? And how do we work out where our our true loyalties lie? It's not an easy question to answer. I think that this is a helpful approach, though. Think about what makes you feel secure when you have worries about the future or about, you know, larger things going wrong in life. Where do you go to in your thoughts to steady the ship and to get that sense of security and comfort back? Where do you go in your thoughts? It could be money. You could think something like, it'll be okay. I've got enough saved up. The pension's looking okay. The house is nearly paid off. I have insurance for a lot of things. So even if something really bad should happen, it'll be fine. We'll probably be fine. For other people, it won't be money, but it could be family. Whatever happens, I know that ultimately it'll be fine. My family will look after me, and therefore I can face the world with confidence. There are other things that we can find our ultimate security in, but probably those are the big two. Those are the two that Jesus mentions, money first and then at the end, family. And those are both good things. That's what's difficult about this. Those are good things. If you have lots of money, if you have a strong family, those are things to be grateful for. But the problem starts when we begin to put our ultimate security in those things. That's what Jesus is getting at in the life of this man, in the heart of this man. When we start to put our ultimate security and identity in those things, when they become the safety net in our psychology, at the end of the day, I'll be fine because, at the end of the day, I'll be fine because Jesus is the king, and he's my king, and he has made promises to me that he will look after me, and therefore, if I lose my job, my home, if my spouse became critically ill, if I lost my parents, Jesus is the one that I look to for security because I know that I'm a member of his kingdom, and I will be so forever. Now, that is not the normal way of thinking. By the standards of this world, where a person has to work to feel secure, that is upside down. That is crazy talk. Jesus says you only need to trust him. And therefore, if you trust him, if you know that you're a kingdom person, then you can endure whatever storms come your way in life. And they don't go away, but through them, you do have that sense of assurance, the Christian peace amid the turmoil, the light that never quite goes out. And you can give away your money, and you can take risks with your family and your job, and you can live dangerously to serve other people because you know that in the end, it's Jesus who will keep you safe. 
Now, maybe that sounds childish to someone here. It's meant to sound childlike, but maybe you think it sounds childish. Well, I think it's no more childish than maintaining the popular pretense that money or family or anything like that can really keep us safe. Because they can't, can they? Not in the end. Jesus is inviting us to leave behind the illusion of security that we find in worldly things and to exchange it for the true security that comes from trusting him and being a member of his kingdom. That's what he asks us, to trust him. And that's fair enough. If he's the king, it's fair enough that he asks us to trust him above all rather than anything else. And as, as we look on in the passage, that's, that is what is so hard for wealthy people to do. Money makes it hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he says it makes it impossible. Jesus says it's like trying to get a camel through the eye of the needle. It's impossible. Even if you chop it up, it's impossible. There's a very memorable, rather disgusting youth talk I once heard. I didn't give, I heard. Even if you use a blender, it's impossible. The eye of the needle, by the way, is, is not a narrow entrance into Jerusalem that a camel would have to... That's not a true story. There's no scholarly backup for that uh, any time near to um, Jesus' day. I, I'm told that um, it's an idea that began to circulate from the ninth century. So that, that's really not what Jesus is talking about. And you can see that in what he says. He says that it's impossible The kingdom of God is so unlike this world. It's so alien to our way of thinking that we would sacrifice wealth and security. It's such a big step to not put our hope in those things but in Jesus that actually it's too big a step. We can't do it. It's impossible for us to enter. It requires such a radical change of mind and heart that Jesus says it's only something God can do. But he can do it and he does do it He enables people, has enabled many of us, to see who Jesus is and to see that he can be trusted as king in our lives. So really, those are the two lessons from the passage. The kingdom of God is for those who will receive from Jesus in humble dependence. The kingdom of God is for those who will relinquish worldly security for true security in Jesus. We need these reminders. We need these lessons about the upside-down kingdom of God We need to be told, ask, don't earn. Trust, rather than clinging on to what you have. Be childlike. Use your money to do some good in the world instead of trying to build a little nest or a fortress out of it because it's Jesus who will keep you safe. Uh, For us, because it is so different from what we think about the normal world, the usual course of things, the usual way of doing things, it's so different, this kingdom kind of seems like a scary place. Maybe you sympathize with this man who went away. It was too big a step for him. I I don't quite want to entrust myself so fully into the hands of this Jesus. It does seem a bit scary. But the final bit of the passage, the very last bit, makes the point in a way that we can't miss that the kingdom is better. It is scary. It is uncomfortable. It is upside down. But it is better It is the place of God's blessing for all who are willing to put their trust in him. 
Just have a look at that briefly. After the um, encounter with the rich man, Peter and his disciples say, we've left everything to follow you. And that was true. Like Scott read to us, they had. They left their fishing nets. They left the family businesses, their homes. And Jesus says, yeah, I know that. And all who follow me, all who truly stake their claim in my kingdom, rather than this world, all who follow me will be rewarded. Look at his words. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. It's a huge promise. And the strangest thing about it is that it is true. It's true. You see it. When a person decides to put their trust in Jesus and become a kingdom person, often in a family that can be misunderstood. That is often hard for siblings or parents to accept. And sometimes it's too hard. And it feels as though that family has been lost. But what does the person gain? The global and the local family of God who are exceedingly generous. Whatever we give away, we find that we get more in return, both now and in the future. So overall, as we finish, this passage is a challenge. Stop trying to earn from God. Simply ask. Stop trying to be proud before him and be the hero of your own story. Become like a little child. Think honestly about where you are staking your claim, where your heart is. Stop trusting in money or family or anything else. Trust Jesus and from that position of strength, live radically for the benefit of others, generously. This passage is a challenge. But that little last bit shows us that precisely 100-fold, more than it's a challenge, it is an offer. That as we let go of things, that is the path to blessing. It does seem like a strange place, this kingdom of God, but it is the better world that God is inviting us into. Will you enter and will you live that way this week? Let's pray. Lord, if we're Christian people here, then we ask, please help us to remember who we really are. Help us to remember that identity and security, that our citizenship is in heaven. Help us not this week in our minds and hearts to be shaped by this world. Help us instead to be shaped by the values, the priorities, and the promises of your kingdom. And so we ask that you would lead us into true security and true blessing knowing that we are unshakably your subjects and your children. Help us to feel that, we pray, and help us to live it for your name's sake. Amen.